Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Well, turn in your Bible, if you will, this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to pick up a brand new question that's been asked of Paul because we can tell by his answer. And it's, and it's a question that deals with those who are married. We have been dealing with different things up until now in chapter 7. The title of the message should be, is, Should I Stay Married? Should I Stay Married? Now, in chapter 7, as we know, Paul is answering questions that the people of Corinth, the believers, have written to him. The problem is we don't have the questions. And I'll tell you what, that's difficult when you go through looking to answer and don't know what the question is. In verses 1 through 7, he addresses their question that seems to have been along the line of, Should I get married or remain single? Their basis for asking the question was their perverted view of sexual behavior. Uh, the phrase at the beginning of verse 1 could have been a phrase that they themselves had coined in their pseudo-spirituality when they said it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Especially those who said, I'm of Paul. And Paul, of course, was single, and that's the way Paul lived. And so they would have adopted that and said, hey, that's a spiritual way to go. And so Paul picks up on it. The word touch is the word that means with a sexual intention. Now understand that. There are two words for touch. And our, our language is English. And when you take the Greek language and try to put it into English, it's going to lose some things. They had different words. I mean, they said what they meant, mean, and they meant what they said. You knew exactly what they were talking about. Even though there was Aramaic spoken during that time, anything that was important was documented in Greek because Greek just doesn't miss it. It just absolutely pegs it every single time. So Paul says it's good for a man, not to sexually, uh, with in, sexual intentions to touch a woman he picks up on their phrase and he, and he immediately realizes their mistake. The mistake was that they had included even man and wife or husband and wife. <laughs> and they thought that it was sin to have any kind of sexual intimacy in marriage. Therefore, they wrongly equated the immoralities of verse 2 with the sexual intimacy which was in marriage. And it's a, it's a terrible thing to do. And many people are still doing that in the 20th century. That's why people grow up, get married, and they have such an awful relationship because they have a weird, perverted view of sexual behavior. They've never heard it from God's Word. They've never seen it in its right context. So Paul puts marriage back where it ought to be. And he shows them very clearly that it is good for a man to touch his wife I mean, in, in the context of marriage. Last week, evidently, in the second service, my mind and my my mouth didn't quite get together. <laughs> Matter of fact, some of the things some people told me I said last week, it just cracks me up. I hope, Davis, you edited some of that out. Like I said, I talked about a usable vessel, and I called it a vessel, whatever that is. 
and God's good and perfect and accessible will instead of acceptable will. And I, they said I made the statement that a man should never touch his wife in marriage. I didn't, I, if I said that, that wasn't on my mind at all. <laughs> uh, the mind is a terrible thing and must be stopped in our lifetime before it kills somebody. <laughs> Paul is trying to put it back in perspective. And, what, and, and for the, all seven verses, they're really from two on, he, he just basically shows them that sexual intimacy in marriage is God's design. And there's nothing wrong with getting married. It's not sinful behavior to enter into this kind of intimacy in marriage. But outside of marriage, it's a sinful thing. And it, it is good for a man not to touch a, a woman as long as he's not in the context of marriage. So in verses 1 through 7, should I get married? Certainly. If God provides the right one, if it meets God's guidelines, all those things. It's not a full teaching on it. He's just answering questions that have been asked him. Well, then in verses 8 through 9, may I get married? I said, can I get married last week? And Chuck Weaver said that is grammatically incorrect. So it should be, may I get married? <laughs> so I'll change it. May I get married? Chuck's from the north. I'm from the south. We have to be corrected a lot in the south. So may I get married? And the question there is, is concerning uh, divorced and widows. He said, I say to the unmarried and to the widows. The term unmarried refers to the divorce. I really believe. And you say, how, do you, how can you say that, Wayne? It doesn't tell you. Well, you go down to verse 34, and it qualifies the unmarried by saying the virgin, the virgin being one who's never had sexual activity in their life. It's never been awakened, and therefore they've never been married. And he makes sure that the unmarried there is qualified as the, the virgin. But, but back in verse 8, he doesn't make that qualification. And I think what he's saying is to those who have been divorced, and he had all kinds of scenarios here he's dealing with, and to the widows, he makes a statement. He says, basically, that it's good for them to remain even as Paul was single. But then he adds, if they, 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 they do, they must keep their sexual desires under control. If they can't, then marriage would be better. He says in verse 9, but if they do not have self-control, he means specifically in that sexual area, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. Now, he doesn't say just because you can't control your desires, run out and get married. He's just simply answering a question. If you let the context be the context, it doesn't give you any problem. But when you try to fit it into some situation that it won't fit into, that's when it becomes a problem. Paul is just simply saying, it's still got to meet God's guidelines. All those things certainly are understood. He even goes on later on and says the important thing is, what does God say? And so that's, that's a guideline we always have to interject into what Paul is saying here. But he simply says marriage for that person who's been divorced or widowed would be is good if, if they cannot control their sexual desires. Because once a person's been married and then is single again, those desires are much more prominent than they are to the person who's never had them awakened in the sexual experience of marriage. Well, <clears throat> now Paul changes to answer another question. And now he begins to deal with those that are married. He says, should I stay married is what basically we're going to be dealing with here. Divorce comes into the picture immediately. And the answer covers basically verse 10 down through verse 18. It was so pagan in their times that it left terrible scars on a lot of these people. And you have to sort of fit yourself into the situation that they had come out of. And these questions are honest questions. Questions that are perhaps even still being asked today in our society. And I think it'd be helpful to go back just a little bit and review the kind of culture they came out of. There were four kinds of marriages in Corinth. And the church 
had all of them represented there to some degree because when they got saved, they came right on into the church, no matter what their pagan background had allowed. There was the type of the marriage of slaves. And of course, this was basically a subhuman type of marriage. If a woman and a man wanted to marry, they could at, at the owner's, the slave owner's permission, but he had absolute full rights over that. And if he decided to change partners or if he decided to do whatever he wanted to do, he could do it. It was a very inhuman pagan type of marriage setting of the slaves of that day. Secondly, there was a form of common law marriage. If they lived together for a year uh, as husband and wife, uh, they were recognized or, or, or lived together as a year just as a couple, then they were recognized as husband and wife by the law of that time. Three, there was a special kind of arranged marriage when a father would sell his daughter to prospective husband. Uh, more of a monetary, cold, uh, calculating type of marriage. And then fourthly, it was much more elevated for the nobility. Oddly enough, the marriage ceremonies you go to today in the 20th century in America comes out of that fourth kind of marriage. Matter of fact, when you go back and study the history, it's like you went to a wedding yesterday. Step by step, all the way down, from the bridesmaids, the best man, to the, to the whole thing. And that's what was brought right into Catholicism. Protestantism picked it up from that and carried it right into what we understand and experience today. Now the early church had members from all of those different kinds of marriages that had come now had been saved and come into the church. Divorce was common. And when you looked at a congregation, there were people there with multiple marriages and multiple divorces. So you can understand. Here they are as believers and they're saying, listen, if we, if we live the way we're supposed to live, We've got a lot of questions that has to do with our marriage. There are two things in our text today <clears throat> that you must understand. First of all, the people Paul is talking about are married. <clears throat> Excuse me. He says that very specifically in, in the verse there in verse 10. But to the married, I give instructions. So they are married. They're not living in some illicit relationship. <clears throat> this would not be during the, the year period of when the common law marriage was, was being determined. That's not at all. These are married by law. They are recognized as married. So remember that. And the second thing to, to see here is that the marriage contract between two individuals, even though made in a state of unbelief, does not become void when one becomes saved. That's something that they begin to wrestle with. You see, hey, I was married to this wrong person back when I was lost, but now that I'm saved, let me divorce him or her and let me find me another partner that's saved so that we can walk on together. No, sir. No, sir. Once the marriage is made, just because one or the other gets saved does not in any way nullify what God recognizes as marriage. Being saved does not eliminate your external circumstances, but here's what it does. It so internally and eternally changes you that you have a different perspective to, to your circumstance. As a matter of fact, become much more influential in eternal things in that circumstance. And so when you're saved, God doesn't get you out of your circumstance. He changes you in the midst of it and then uses it as a process to conform you into the image of Christ Jesus. Well, let's see what we can learn as we as he changes gear now and he's talking about those that are already married, recognized as marriage couples. All right, first of all, I want you to see the authority of the apostle. Now to illustrate this, do you know what you call a man who can jump out in an interstate highway with three lanes and stop 30 Mack trucks by simply raising up his hand? You call that man, not Superman, but you call that man a policeman. 
All he has to do is hold up a badge and that badge gives him authority to stop all of those huge, I mean, several tons a piece trucks to make them stop. And that badge, now listen, represents <clears throat> those that have given him authority and given him his orders. That's what that badge represents. Well, in the same sense, the apostles of the New Testament, that we, the official <clears throat> office of apostle, were those who wore the badge of authority that Christ himself had given to them. And we said this a long time ago, but I want to go back over it again. Sometimes I talk so fast that perhaps you miss what I'm saying. In verse 1 of chapter 1, it says, and excuse me, everybody's got something during this time. Anybody had this kind of stuff? Raise your hand. Anybody else? Had yeah. Good, you understand. I'm sorry. I swallowed something. I just hope it's no fat grams in. All right, verse 1. Of chapter one. He says, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. He didn't set himself up to be an apostle. He was called as an apostle and, and by the will of God. Now, an apostle means one sent forth with a message. Apo, away from. Stello, to send. To send away from. And with a message, like an ambassador. But with much more official authority. They had the badge of authority given by Christ himself. Now, the only way that we have apostles today, and I do believe we do have apostles and prophets today, but not, in the gen, but not in the official sense. You can't have an apostle today like the apostle Paul because what he wrote under the badge of authority of Christ himself through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God is what we study every time we come together. We don't have apostles that are giving us the word of God. It's been given to us and therefore we study it and our authority comes now from the word of God. But before we had the word of God, there were apostles. Ephesians 2.20 says our faith is built upon the apostles and the prophets. You see, an apostle was one who had God's badge of authority upon him. I can see in a generic sense why we could have apostles and, and prophets today. In the fact of one sent a missionary being an apostle or whatever, however else you want to use those terms. But when I say there's no apostles and prophets, I mean in the office that the Apostle Paul, the Apostle John, the Apostle James, these men had in that time. They had a special badge of authority Christ himself had given to them. In our verse, in verse 10, Paul says, as an apostle, but to the married, I give instructions. And then he qualifies it. Not I, but the Lord. You see, a person who has a badge is representing somebody else. The actual authority, uh, the one who gives the command, and then he deputizes this person and says, take what I have said and I'll give it to you. You relay it to the people. That's what an apostle does. And that's what Paul is saying here. That's all he's saying. The word instructions is the word paragelo. Paragelo means to pass on an announcement, to give the word to somebody nearby, to advance an order, to give a charge or a command. The word is the word used for military commands that are passed from a commanding officer through that chain of command down to the men. And whoever stands in that chain of command wears a badge of authority. But the authority is really not theirs. The authority goes back to the one who gave the command. And Paul is saying that. I'm simply relaying to you what God has commanded. When I was in military school, and I know you, you look at me and say, you've never been in military. I said, I have. When I finished high school, my mother and daddy said, you're not about to go to college. <laughs> because I had goofed off so much. I, Oh boy, I spent a lot of my time in my life wasting time. So mom said, you're going to military school. And I said, that sounds great. Uh, yeah, 
And when I got there, buddy, they started shaping me up real quick. My hair came off, bloop. And then they, they had, you had to line your shoes up a certain way underneath your bed. You had to hang your hangers, had to be measured. They took a ruler and measured to see if they were exactly one inch apart in your closet and all this kind of stuff. You had to be able to take a quarter and bounce it off the bed and all that kind of stuff. Well, I knew that to give in completely to that, I'd lose my mind. So I had to have a little fun here and there. <laughs> you had to run laps when you disobeyed an authority. <laughs> I was in the best shape that year I've ever been in my life. <laughs> the cadets all knew me, maybe just only my name, but there was, I was the guy running around the circle while they were marching around. I was running with a rifle over my head. Constantly I was having to do something like that. One Saturday, we had inspections on Saturday, and they were full uniform inspections on Saturday just to keep, make sure we remembered where we were, I guess. And I was outside earlier, and they'd gotten into a water fight with the two officers assigned to our barracks. Now, I was in a very special barracks. I was in the president of the school's home. He handpicked several students to live in his, his basement, and that was a barracks that we lived in. <laughs> Somehow, he, missed, he looked over mine. I, I think he was looking at somebody else's reference when he took my name. And I, I, I was outside. I'm throwing water balloons at the lieutenants that are there over me. They don't have to stand inspection. I forget this. I do. And finally, I ran out of water, so I grabbed the fire extinguisher, and I was just hosing them down with the fire extinguisher, and I used every bit of pressure in that thing, had foam all over me, had a pair of gym shorts on, and I heard somebody inside the barracks say, Rue, Tidge Hut, and I'm thinking, oh, no. <laughs> I'm supposed to be in full uniform standing in my bed, so <laughs> I ran in with my fire extinguisher in my hand, foam all over me, <laughs> and all the guys in the room, Matter of fact, we have Jennifer Old in our church. I don't know if Jennifer's in this service or the next service. Jennifer's dad, Gene, who died when Jennifer was three years old, was one of my dearest friends. And <laughs> Gene, I can remember him as if it was yesterday <laughs> laughing. He had a deep voice, and you could just hear him. Just <laughs> you know, and I walk in, and I walk up to my bed, and I stand at attention, set my fire extinguisher down. <laughs> well, that day, <laughs> The top commander of the whole unit was the one doing the inspections. Not, not one of the peons, but I mean the, the big guy. And he was standing there, and I played football with him. On the football field, no rank, but it, when it came to the military, we had rank. And so I'm standing there, he's looking over at me, and his lower lip is just trembling. He's, just, he's trying his best not to laugh. And what he would do, he wouldn't speak directly to you. He would turn to the staff sergeant, and the staff sergeant, then he would speak to you, buddy. And he turned to him to tell him, <laughs> What to tell me? But he couldn't. He just broke down laughing. I mean, he just roared. Like, and he just took off and just left the room. I mean, we, that was the end of all the inspection for that morning. And the guys were very appreciative because many of them weren't ready either. But you see, he would take the order. He was a top dog. And he would pass it to the staff sergeant who would relay it to me. And I just spent a lot of time with that just to help you understand what an apostle was. They didn't come up with this stuff. God had spoken now, Paul, in the inspiration of the Spirit of God, took what God had said, the Lord Jesus, and relayed it to the people of Corinth, either to remind them or to teach them whether they knew it or whether they didn't know it. He gave them the instruction that God had given. So, as an apostle, he's one who relays that which the commander has said. He's not one who comes up with it and says, I know the commander will bless this because I'm a good guy and he honors my opinion. If ever he renders an opinion, it's a sanctified opinion because it's under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Never take these letters as just a personal thing that he wrote and God chose to, to, to bless 
All scripture is given by God and profitable. It's inspired by God. Well, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 6, what Paul is saying is Jesus has covered this. And Jesus says in Matthew 19, 6, consequently they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. I want to show you this. Marriage is made law, not by the state of Tennessee, but by God himself. It doesn't matter if you're, married or if you're a Christian or you're unchristian. When you get married, God makes it law. And what man has, as God has joined together, let no man put asunder. So Paul, with his badge of authority, says, I'm going to cover a question you asked me. Some of you are asking me the question, Can I, should I get divorced? Should I stay married? Because now I'm a believer and things have changed. And he says, I'm going to give you a message relayed from the commander. It's not mine. It's coming right from him. And he says that you should, the wife should not leave her husband. Then, of course, later on, he says the husband should not send away his wife. So he covers them both right there. Now, we need to get this down, folks. This is not what Wayne thinks, and this is not what Paul's opinion is. This is what God commanded, and his apostle relays it back to them. She should not leave her husband. Marriage is solidified by God himself, made law by God not by the laws of the land, has nothing to do with whether you're saved or unsaved. But when that union comes together, God seals it. And from that point on, we need to understand what he thinks about it. So the authority of an apostle, when he speaks, he's not just speaking as someone with his own opinion and hopefully you'll get a lot out of it. He speaks under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God and here specifically says, I'm relaying what the commander has given to me. Secondly, however, let's look at the absolute will of the Lord. But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. There are two words for not in the scripture. And see again, again, when you take the Greek and put it into English, we don't know that. There's two words. Ou is the little word that means absolutely not in any way, shape, or form. That's not the word used here. The little word me, M N, or it's pronounced M E me, and when it's transliterated, is a little word that means a relative not. In other words, it depends on the context, the situation, what's being said. So it's relative to something, whereas the ooh doesn't matter. It's just absolutely, it's an absolute not. Well, the word used here is the relative word, the word me. The very fact that a wife might leave her husband, not that God told her to, but she might, is found in the next verse, verse 11. But if she does leave, God said it, she should not. But if she does, now, why would she leave? Under, under the, the guidelines of Scripture and under the grace of God, is there a reason ever for a wife to leave a husband? Yes. Never commanded, but permitted. What is that? It's an exception. And Jesus makes that exception. Evidently, they understood that exception. In verse 19, or verse 9, rather, of Matthew 19, if you want to turn over there, it would be best if you read it with me because I want you to know this is not Wayne speaking. This is from God through Wayne to you. This is what God wrote. I didn't write it. Matthew 19 and verse 9. This would be the exception. Only in the sense of permission, never in the sense of command. But Jesus said in Matthew 19 and 9, and of course this is a study in its own, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, now look, except for what? 
Immorality. What's immorality? Immorality is, a, is a, an illicit sexual relationship you have with somebody else outside the marriage bond. It can be adultery. It can be incest. It can be homosexuality. It can be a lot of things. But it's with someone other than your wife or someone other than your husband. And, and he says, except for. That's not a translator's term. That's a Greek term. It's right there. And it's so clear. But I want to tell you something. People back off from that thing. And they try every way they can think of to make, make it look like it, that's not what he said. That's what he said. Jesus said this. He didn't say, I command you to do it, but he says, I'm gonna give you a way. There is an exception and only one, and that exception is if there's immorality on the part of one or the other of the married couple. You see, even then it's permitted. Matter of fact, that was the question. The Pharisees came to him always trying to trick him and trap him. And they said, Moses commanded them to get rid of divorcement. And Jesus said, no, he did not. He permitted them. That's a huge difference, folks. Reconciliation is the bottom line of everything that God ever has done. And I want to tell you something. When adultery and this kind of immorality took place in the Old Testament, the Levitical law says, kill them on the spot. It's by the grace of God that he even permits a divorce because there's been a death, you see. Not a death physically, but a death to that relationship by the trust factor being absolutely ripped apart and an illicit relationship taken outside of marriage. So there is an exception. Now, as far as I know, you, if you can show me something different, help yourself. People say, oh, but Brother Wayne, that means during the engagement period. That doesn't mean when they're, folks, how in the world? You know, the scripture is like a, a, a prisoner of war. You persecute it long enough, it'll say whatever you want it to say. But if you just let it speak, Jesus said, except there be for immorality. And that immorality is something with another person outside the marriage bond, whatever that be. It doesn't have to necessarily be just the, the sexual act. It can be other sexual acts. I mean, I'm not going to get into all that. Okay, Paul does not bring this up here. And I told you from the very beginning, if you try to make 1 Corinthians 7 a complete teaching on marriage, divorce, remarriage, or whatever, you are making a huge mistake. He doesn't intend for it to be a complete teaching. He is simply answering questions written to him. And if you've never had to been put on the spot to write back things, I'm sure that he probably thought, well, I'm not covering this all the way, but God, the Holy Spirit was leading him to write what he wrote. So what we have there is not complete but it, it brings the principle very clearly forth. Why he doesn't mention that exception, I don't know. But maybe in the very fact that she does leave, that could, could be their understanding of it. I don't know. But to the married, he says in verse 10, I give instruction. Again, the believers there, the, the, these people that are married are believers. Now you need to understand it. Look at verse 12 and I'll show you why. Why are the, are the two, two married partners in verse 10 married and believers. Why are they believers? Okay. Verse 12 in chapter 7. He says, but to the rest I say. Now if you'll just read on a little bit more, you'll find out to the rest involves those who have one believer and one unbeliever in the marriage. And that throws in a whole other question and involves a whole other answer that Paul gives to them. But here he's talking about in verse 10, two married partners, both Believers. The word for leave is the word chorizo in verse 10, that the wife should not leave her husband. It means to sever something. Here it's in the, with a passive voice, but with a middle meaning. Middle meaning uh, that she herself separates herself from her husband. And it's not because of adultery. <clears throat> well, that would have been brought up. There is one exception. But here, evidently, 
that she should never leave her husband for reasons other than adultery. And even then, as, as I said earlier, reconciliation is the bottom line. God can forgive and grace is there and mercy is there. So that's just a simple permission. That's not an order or command. She should never leave her husband. She is severing the relationship with her husband. She is leaving him, divorcing him, both believers. And adultery is not the issue. Perhaps she burned the toast or maybe he didn't bring enough money home or whatever, but she's leaving him. And, and Paul says that, that the Lord said that the wife should not leave her husband. Now, in this verse, verse 10, Paul indicates the woman and not the man is the initiator of the divorce. Now, that's kind of important because he, he switches it over in a, in a minute. The last of the 11, as a matter of fact, the man is the initiator. Look over, look over verse 11 in the last part of it. And that the husband should not send his wife away. <laughs> it's a different word there. Uh, there are two verbs. Corizo is used in verse, verse 10, which involves only the wife. She leaves her husband. He stays there. I mean, he's, he, I mean, he's involved, but it's her making the ch choice and she walks away. He stays, she leaves. But in verse 11, the, the verb there is afiyami, which means to send away. And it's the husband that is the initiator and he is sending her away. Now, in both situations, she leaves. In verse 10, she chooses to leave. In verse 11, he sends her away. Isn't that just like a man? He's too lazy to leave himself. He makes sure she gets out. But in both situations, one, the wife makes a decision, she's going to walk away. Two, the man makes a decision and sends her away, just gets rid of her. And divorce among the Jewish community at this time was rampant. They had absolutely no uh, uh, real teaching here that they should have held to as to what marriage was. They, they just divorced whatever reason they could think of. But in both cases, she leaves. Verse 10 on her own, verse 11 not on her own. Whatever the reason for either the woman severing her ties with the husband or the husband sending the wife away, they're not biblical. How do we know? In both situations, adultery is not mentioned. So in other words, it's for some other reason other than unfaithfulness in the area of sexual behavior that they are walking away or sending the other away. So these believers, both the man and woman, are both wrong as far as what Paul is saying, relaying what God commanded in doing what they're doing. Again, there's only one biblical way in which divorce is even allowed. And I'm going to say that over and over and over again, and that is adultery. You say, well, Wayne, I've read a little ahead of you, and if that unbeliever won't come back, she's no longer yoked. What does an unbeliever do when he leaves? I mean, come on, put two and two together. It does equal four. He's headed towards another woman or another man, whatever. And so it still comes right back to the same truth. But we'll cover that in another message. You say, Wayne, I don't like what you're saying because it's really not keeping up with the times. <laughs> well, you know what? I, I'm sorry you don't like what I'm saying, but I want you to know, understand something I mean today. I'm not saying it because it's my opinion. I'm saying it because God said it. Whether you like it or not, that's the way God said it. Now, that sounds unmerciful, doesn't it? Now, listen, that's what we do. We try to feel with people to the point that we relax the standard of God. You can't do that. I'm caring for you when I'm telling you. God said she should not. He should not. Period. And the only exception that God gives is the exception of immorality. And that is never a command. It's only a permission at best. It beats stoning them to death. Reconciliation is always the heart of God. Now, the problem was, as, as is in our day, in Corinth, many wives 
had already wrongly left their husbands. That's what, he get, that's what he's dealing with. I mean, you can tell the standard and people say, uh-huh, good, amen. And they go do what they're going to do anyway. There were women there, wives, that had already wrongly divorced their husband. And to these he says, but if she does leave, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not send his wife away. It is clear that neither party is free to marry someone else if they divorce because of anything other than adultery. You say, Wayne, this is not answering my questions. It's raising more. Don't tell me, tell Paul. This, he doesn't cover it all. This is just what he's saying. You see, divorce is not the issue as much as remarriage is the issue. That's the issue. You see, I can counsel, you can counsel, anybody can counsel and try to tell people what God's word says. They're gonna walk out that door, slam it in your face, find somebody that agrees with them and do what they wanna do. But the problem is, now that you've made your choice, are you going to live biblically within that choice? Wrong, right, or whatever, you see. Because remarriage is going to become the issue. It is today, it was then. And so Paul answers the question. If she does leave, let. Now, you read it for yourself. I ought to have you read it out loud. I hear some of these preachers sometimes on television. Let me hear her. <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that to you. But read it for yourself. He says, let her remain unmarried. Period. Or else, there is one other way, be reconciled to her husband. You say, ah, Wayne, you don't know the husband I'm dealing with. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Do you know the word reconciled? Maybe that'll help you. Before you jump on the gun, write me a letter, just to understand. You might not understand what he's saying here. Just the word reconciled doesn't cover it. What is the word? The word comes from two words. an aorist passive imperative. It's the word kata lasso. Katas and intensive. Alasso means to change. The change has to do with the one who's at fault. If there's a change in that old boy and that old boy converts, if that old boy turns around, if that old boy does what he's supposed to do and you've walked reconciled with him, there, or the same would be there for the wife. But if that change is not going to happen and you've already made your choice, then remain unmarried. That's pretty clear. They ask, Paul answered. <laughs> you, ever, you ever gone up to somebody and asked them a question and they just told you? <laughs> and you walked away thinking, why did I ever ask that? I called a friend of mine, not long, but I'll tell you who it is. <laughs> He'll shoot me. Bill Stafford. I, Bill and I are good friends. And I called him one day and I was just frustrated, discouraged, just beat up. And I called him up to tell him everything, all of my problems. And Bill was kind of in a hurry. And he said to me, Well, Wayne, you know I love you. All I can tell you is live what you preach. I'll see you. Bye, click. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, Bill, don't hang up. Don't you care? Yeah, he cared. He told me the truth. He just cut to the quick. You preach it, live it. You know, folks, we just don't like that, do we? Oh, but Brother Wayne, you don't understand my situation. You're right, I don't. But I want to tell you something. God does. And you better understand something real quick. It's not up to you to bend and manipulate his commands to do what you want to do. God's word stands, period. And God said, if you've already wrongly made that choice, okay, you've made it. Now lie in it. Now, if you reconcile to your husband, if there's a change that comes, yes, that's permissible. Otherwise, stay unmarried. That's what he says. Now, you say, I know questions are going through somebody's mind. Well, I've done it. Oh, gosh, and I've done it all wrong. And now, what am I... Don't get into that. That's not what he's talking about. That's at another place. The thing you've got to do is reckon with what, should I stay married? And Paul says, yes, 
stay married. The authority of the apostle, the absolute command of God. And the third thing that I want you to see, and the last thing, is the anxiety of those who live in split families. Now you can, you can sense what's going on here. Because now he turns in verse 12 to a family that's not two believers that are married. He talks about a believer and an unbeliever that are married, whether they be Jews that have rejected Jesus as being their Messiah, whether they be pagan Gentiles or what. One's a Christian and one is not a Christian. But to the rest I say not to the Lord. He addresses the anxiety of the split family. What kind of anxiety? Anxiety as to their own purity. Anxiety as to their children. All these kind of things. What Paul means when he says, I say, not the Lord, he is simply saying that Jesus, while he was here on this earth, never addressed this particular situation. He's not saying, I've come up with an opinion. This is not God speaking, this is just me. That's not what he's saying. He's just simply saying, Jesus never addressed it. But now as his apostle and through the leadership of the Holy Spirit of God, I'm going to address it as his apostle. That's why I say there are no apostles like that today. There are people who are making themselves those kinds of apostles, adding to the word of God. No, Paul says, I'm taking now by the leadership of the Spirit of God, the prerogative as an apostle to address this issue. It's not just his opinion. There are two interesting scenarios that, that come up here. When he uses the term the rest, Paul's referring to those who were, who were whose one spouse was saved and the other's not. One, is, one, one spouse is saved, the other's not. There are two situations. One is when an unbelieving spouse wants to leave and two is when an unbelieving spouse doesn't want to leave. <laughs> so he deals with them both there. One of them says, you're a Christian now, I never married a Christian and I'm sick of it and I'm leaving. And they leave. The other one is, you're a Christian, I'm not, but I still love you. I want to stay. And so there are two situations here that he addresses evidently they were asked of, of, of him. And uh, what are believers to do when married to unbelievers? Were they free to divorce because they were unequally yoked? Could they now live even as a single and be free from them? No. These were honest questions. Paul had taught them that their bodies were temples of the Holy Spirit back in chapter 6, verses 15 through 20. And now they're honestly concerned that since, since they're members of Christ's body, uh, how can they still be married to unbelievers? They thought that this union joined them to Satan. Their people today think the same thing. They thought that this would defile not only them, but their children. And many of them just simply desired a Christian partner. So this was part of the scenario here. And some of them had just bailed out. Christians were not to worry that they themselves, nor their children, nor their marriage would be defiled in any way being married to an unbeliever. And I want to say that loud and clear. If you're here today, you're a wife, and normally it's in the situation of a wife because men are the hard, harder heads. And the wife is in a situation that her husband's not a believer. And perhaps she's worried that any kind of, even the sexual intimacy, anything like that would affect her, her walk with God, would affect her children because he's an unbeliever, they're unequally yoked. And Paul would scream at you and say, absolutely not. In fact, the very opposite is true. That's what he's going to say. Both the children and the unbelieving spouse were sanctified through the believing wife or husband. Look at verse 14. If this doesn't like your fire, your wood's wet. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean but now they are holy. Now that's what God says. It's exactly opposite of what your mind tries to tell you. Here, I'm married to an unbeliever. <laughs> Man, this is going to defile everything. If we have children, they're going to, you know. No, the very fact that you're a believer being in that family 
is marvelous. You, you don't, we don't realize, folks, the impact believers have on this dark earth. We don't understand that at all. But here, here's one little way of being able to look at it. It says in verse 12, and she consents to live with him. Now here, is, it's the opposite. It is the wife. And he says she consents to live with him. He's a believer. She's an unbeliever. It was not uncommon that the unbelieving spouse would just walk out when the other was saved, as we said. Paul is saying that if, if they stay and are willing, don't divorce them. Stay married to them. And then in verse 13, he just simply turns the whole situation around. He says, and a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, let her not send her husband away. Now, the word sanctify in verse 14. Again, look at verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through the wife. The unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. Now, what does the word sanctify mean? This is not teaching that if one's a believer, it's automatic the other one will become a believer. That's not, that's not what he's saying. The word sanctify in its root understanding, hagiazo, means to be set apart. Put in a class all by itself. And that's the way it's used here. It doesn't mean that he is spiritually saved, no. But he is sanctified. He is set apart. What set him apart? The fact that his spouse or her, her spouse is a believer. That sets that person apart. It's in a passive voice. This act causes something to happen to the unbelieving mate. He didn't do anything. It's because of the act of, of, the, of the spouse. And it's in the perfect tense. The perfect tense means because of something that happens. Boom. And what it is is one person gets saved. This is caused over here in the state that they're in. So this unbelieving husband or wife, whichever one, can be just lost as a goose. But their spouse gets saved. All of a sudden, they're put in a class all by themselves. They're not saved. But there's a protection. There's something interesting that happens here when you put a believer in that kind of mix. And again, Paul is not saying that they're saved. But they're, the family becomes unmeasurably superior to a lost family. There's something unique about it. What's unique about it is that one that got saved. One Christian spouse in the home graces the whole family. Because God dwells in that one believer, all the blessings he gives to that believer as they live attached to him will spill over and affect the whole family. So in that sense of the word, that family as a unit has been set apart and put in a class all by themselves. So the next time you're beating yourself up because you have an unbelieving family, if you're a believer, stay right where you are. Attach yourself to Jesus and let the light that is in you touch the people that are around you. You have, by your very presence in that family, sanctified that whole family in the external sense, in the sense of you're far superior than to a lost family with no believer within it. In addition, even though the believer's faith cannot save others in the home, it's often the means of other family members coming to know Christ. Everyone in here can give stories of a godly grandmother amidst pagan sons and grandsons who continued, continued, continued to live attached to Christ. Because of that, for generations, the family was blessed. You see, they're, they're set apart. They're put in a class all by themselves. You put a believer in the mix, you put them in a class all by themselves. You know, it's amazing to me, the power in the life of a believer. You know, people say, why has God not destroyed America? And I'll say back to them, because his people are here and there's power in a believer and it affects their circumstances. Folks, I'll tell you something. If you're, not, if you're living as a Corinthian, you need to shape up because you're not, that influence is not being felt in your family. But when you start living attached to Christ, it affects everything and everybody around you. Now, all hell will break loose, but you're going to affect the people around you. And by when I say all hell, I'm not cussing. That's exactly what I mean. I mean, it will raise up on you because darkness and light never get along real well. 
But I want to tell you something. There's a powerful influence on the people around you when you're saved. Well, I was thinking about this and when God chose to destroy Sodom, Abraham came before him and pleaded with him to spare the whole city. The whole city, pagans, homosexuality, you kidding me, man, they wrote the book. All of that was going on there. He said, save the city if I can find 50 believers, 50 believers. Of course, he narrows that to 45, to 40, to 30, to 20, and finally to 10, and he can't even find 10. That's the whole terrible thing about the situation. The point being that God was willing to spare the whole city if they could just find 10 people that were saved. 10 people being saved could rescue a whole city because of the influence those 10 people have on pagan people that are around them. I hear people all the time coming to me and say, Wayne, I wish I could find a better job. I say, what do you mean? I wish I could work for a Christian. And that is wonderful when you can work as, but sometimes though, <laughs> that, that person nominally is a Christian may be worse than what you thought it was going to be. But they say, I live in a pagan place and man, I'm getting persecuted all the time. I'm getting talked about all the time. Man, come back to this verse. If you're a believer in that place, God has put some light in there. And that light in there is going to affect everybody around you. They may not like you, but buddy, they can't get away from you. When I was in college, they called me deacon and reverend. And when they'd tell some of the jokes they'd tell in the locker rooms, they'd always say, oh, here he is. You go, you go out hunting with them and they say, oh, here he comes. And all that kind of junk, all of us have been through that. But I'm going to tell you something. I remember one night, a guy knocking on my door about two in the morning, and I opened the door, and he said, Wayne, i got to talk to you. The very guy that was spitting my face when things were going well for him, but he'd gotten a girlfriend of his pregnant, and he didn't know where to turn, and he came right to where he knew the light was. And that's what God's saying. Man, if you're a believer married to an unbeliever, don't bail out. You don't realize the influence you're having in that family, and that whole family is sanctified just because you're in it. Live attached to Christ and let those eternal things be influenced by your life. What an impact we have and don't even know it. I've been on planes before when engines have gone out. Now, I know Christians have gone down in planes, but there's sometimes I wonder if God didn't have a purpose for one Christian on that plane. So because of that one Christian's purpose, he spared the whole plane. That could be. <laughs> That Christian's purpose is over, so the whole plane goes, with. <laughs> but, but there's, there's influence here. <laughs> That's like Jonah got in the wrong boat. <laughs> that thing went down. Well, you see, there's a, there's a powerful influence here, and that's what Paul is saying. In our context, it shows that God sees the family as a unit. Oh, man, my time's gone. Now, listen, this protects the children, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving Wife is sanctified through her believing husband, for otherwise your children are unclean. But in this situation, if you've got one believer, they're put into a special circumstance and protected from undue spiritual harm. Well, ah, that's enough. <laughs> Pick it up next time. Went deer hunting this past week, as I told you about, and uh, I won't say a whole lot about that part of it in the next service because I get a lot of calls and letters. And, uh, like I said, this time, the deer were glad to see us leave. But I was in a stand. Now, you have to understand, I, with my equipment on, I probably push about 300. I don't weigh 300, but I push it. I mean, where all that equipment? <laughs> I mean, I'm big. <laughs> and we have, they have these ladder stands that are 16 feet high. Now, 16 feet doesn't sound very high to you, except that it's two feet above the backboard of a basketball goal. Now, that makes it a little bit different. Puts it in perspective. 16 feet's way up there. 
300 pounds from 16 feet could probably make a huge crater anywhere in America. There's something they tell you, and I know to do it. It's for safety. It's for security. You have no worry whatsoever if you'll do it. And that's to wear a safety belt. It's a harness. You put it on. You put it around the tree. Something happens to the stand. You're hanging there. Now, it may be a little uncomfortable, but at least you didn't break your neck or make a crater in the ground. Well, I do that when I'm in a tree stand, the kind you climber, a climber. I know somebody, what is a climber? I'm not going to. But when I'm in a, a ladder stand, like I'm talking about, I don't usually do that because they're comfortable and I like to move around and it's not going to fall. I'm up in this ladder stand, 16 feet up, enjoying myself. I mean, I just love deer hunting because I'm just, it's quiet. Nobody bugs you, no telephone. If anything moves, you shoot it. I mean, it's just a wonderful time. I'm sitting up there and the wind picks up. The wind picks up. The pine tree that I'm up against is about this big around. Needs to be about this big around, see, for that kind of stand because it's, it's, a, it's a straight bar on the back of it. And so, but it's got a chain around the tree, wrapped around the tree. And I'm sitting there, wind's blowing. I'm just sort of blowing in the wind. <laughs> and suddenly, all of a sudden, I mean, without any warning whatsoever, that tree stand left the tree and just completely reversed around this way. Came, turned all the way around. You have to picture it. I'm going around like this and I'm looking straight down. No seatbelt, no, no safety harness. Well, as it did it, God was grace, just full of grace for me. I had the thought, reach for a limb. I grabbed the limb, I like to pull my arm out of socket, but I was able to hold myself just long enough to figure out, and I said out loud, Lord, we have a problem here. <laughs> I did, I said that out loud. I said, Lord, we have a problem here, a big problem. Now, the point was what to do with my gun. They said, get rid of your gun. Cause, you know, I said, nah, I don't want to put that scope back on again. So I put the gun over here. I said, now, how am I going to do this? Well, I eased around, let the, let, came on around, grabbed the stand, and I'm hanging around. The, the chair now is looking straight down, but I'm hanging on to the tree and to that. Finally, I decide, well, maybe I know what I can do. I climbed over to the back of it, as big as I am, and climbed down the back of it. It was a little awkward. I mean, I'm not telling you it happened as easy as I'm telling you, but I finally got down. When I got down, I'm thinking, whoo, that was close. I had a little prayer time, thank the Lord. Grabbed the stand and started to put it back up. And when I did, the chain broke. That's how, that's how weak that chain was. Here I had just climbed down that thing. The only thing holding the stand of the tree was a chain. But I thought about that. <laughs> you knew I was going to work it in somehow. God's word is the safety belt. Because when you don't realize it, your life can cave in right from beneath you. And buddy, if you're not strapped to the tree of God's word, you're in big trouble. When you call your friends and see what they advise you, you better watch out because you're going to make a crater bigger than you ever fallen in a long time. Stick to what God says. Period. It'll hold you up and God is faithful to what he said. Father, we thank you so much for this time. Lord God, thank you for your word, how refreshing it is to come to that which you have said and Lord, just bask in it. And Lord, I know that there are couples here this morning that perhaps have gone beyond what we have said. Thank you, Lord, that you have grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you, Father, that there are other directions and other places in scripture and that if they'll commit themselves to you, surrender to you, that Lord, there is a way, you are the light and your word will continually shed light. But thank you, Father, for the preventive medicine your word is, for those who, who stand has not caved in from under them yet. May we lock ourselves to what you say, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Would you stand with me with your heads bowed and eyes closed, and maybe somebody here this morning that just needs to come and find a place at the altar and put that safety belt back on.
and say, God, I just want to just bow before you. Don't make any promises. You won't keep them. But just to bask in his presence, he's the promise keeper. We're not promise keepers. He's the promise keeper. Maybe you need to come to the one who in you will give you the grace to do what you need to do. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. You'd like to come and receive Christ. We have those that can introduce you to him. So our ministers are down front. We don't count heads. You just do as God the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart. Tim, you lead us. Sing that with Tim. This just says a prayer. The cross before me, the world behind me, the cross before me, the world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back, no turning back. Father, may this be our determination. And Father, thank you that the grace of the Lord Jesus enables us to do what you tell us to do. We love you, we praise you, and know that your will is good and acceptable and perfect in our life. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight discipleship starts at 6 o'clock. Brand, everything's back in full gear. Diana and myself and Bill Stafford will be preaching in Mount Dora, Florida, First Baptist Church. She won't be preaching. <laughs> Let me qualify that. She'll be speaking Wednesday, uh, some of the mornings with the ladies. And then we'll be back Thursday. Bob Vereen will be here Wednesday night. And Bob has shared with me the message that God has given to him. I, and I, I just encourage you to come. I really do believe it's a word we need to hear at the beginning of 1998. Something God put on his heart. He ran it by me. We drove down together and came back together from the hunt this past week. And I just really believe that you'd be well blessed if you could be here Wednesday night. I'm not trying to work up a crowd. I'm just saying there's a message I really do think we need to hear. Bob's If you've never been in the darkness, you've never sensed the cold, lack of warmth, no direction, confusion that comes from being in the darkness, you don't understand that song. But when you've been in the darkness, you thank God for the light. What do you need, Tim? For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org.